Out of the 94 Best Picture winners, only one will be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. The episode gets started in just a second. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Quest for the Bestest. I'm Timo, joined, of course, by my four great, great co-hosts, and today we are talking about My Fair Lady from 1964. It's a great, great, excellent musical, so long and so entirely fantastical. I can't wait to talk about it, but first, we've got to go a little bit back to yesteryear, go back to the last week, and discuss what film we talked about. Oh, that's right, it was Birdman, and oh my god. We put it at an incredible place. Second. Second. I can't keep it up. Second, second place. place. Can you believe it? Second, second place. place. What, what an incredible film. I, 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 We really enjoyed it. That's a great review that we did last week. And I'm sure we have some great comments on it, don't we, fellas? Ooh, we do. I would like uh, to thank both Winston Ch- Churchill and Crocodile Dundee for joining yeah. us for that intro. <laughs> it's so Australian the whole time. <laughs> Uh, but but so yeah, we're last week we did Birdman. Birdman goes to place number two. So I'm I'm your host Timo Nelson here to do the housekeeping, and today we're yeah. going to read a featured comment. Um, this comes from actually a new Quest viewer, as far as I know, but I also never oh. read the comments, so maybe they've been here every week. This comes from Nameless Anonymous, who says, I watched the film for the first time so that I can be prepared for this video, and I have to say this is an 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 Typo. Be careful, folks. Be careful. Uh-oh. Your typos sure will be read on air. This yeah, is want, an... You want to run these through spell check. This is an A, an enchanting film with novel ideas and an amazing cast. Love Edward Norton. Lol. 9.5 out of 10 for me. Now let's see, see what you guys have to say. Haha. <laughs> Can't wait. I like this comment for a number of reasons. The ending suggests that they were commenting before they watched the video, and I find that quite compelling. Play a little game yes. with yourself. How do the yeah, scores yeah. line up? And uh, Mr. Uh, Anonymous, you you were very close. So thank you for very, commenting. Very Be careful I'd, with the spell check, but I'll yes. allow it just as once for your first comment. I'd like people to get... Uh, I, I'd like to merge a school of commenters here. I want the people who hate our opinions to merge with the people who comment before watching the video. I just want those people to just really converge and just hate on our opinions before we even give them. That sounds like most YouTube comments, yeah. Well, well, the Venn diagram is pro- close to a circle. <laughs> oh, I see. Interesting, interesting. Okay, mates, mates, mates. We got to talk about this movie, My Fair Lady. <laughs> Let's, all horrible accents aside, horrible accents being the primary motivator of this entire film, which may be being the primary motivator of this episode. What do you guys think of it? Who's uh, going first here? <laughs> I'll go first. Um, actually, talking to you first. You, you've seen this movie more times. Go ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah, more times than anyone else here because uh, I'd, I'd seen it before. Um, My Fair Lady is an interesting film because it's a film that I really like. I think this is a great film on basically every metric for me personally, but I don't think it's a very good Best Picture winner. I think it, I think mm. it slips a little bit under the radar, but man, excellent performances, excellent songs, excellent production design, costumes, lighting... Everything is fantastic, but it does dip a little bit at the end. Uh, so I can't say it's one of the best best picture winners, but it's certainly one of my one of my top favorite musicals for sure. Yes, uh, I'd like to go next because I feel like we'll be on a decreasing gradient of our appreciation of this film. Just a vibe I'm getting. Uh, but Ooh. I also quite enjoyed My Fair Lady. I think Tucker uh, said a lot of uh, truths there that I that I hold true in my heart. That was actually like that was like five cr- truths and a lie. One of those wasn't true. <laughs> a truth. Um, I like the performances in this. I think this is this is genuinely a, a quite a funny movie uh, that 
sustains its comedy uh, over nearly three hours of film. Um, Tucker mentioned the ending there, which is a, a, a large sticking point in my mind. Uh, for you know retroactively like looking back on what the film is saying which i'm sure we'll get into but yeah the songs are also really catchy and fun uh even even like the the more somber downtrodden ones that i'm usually not a fan of in musicals are are quite good so yeah overall enjoyed my fair lady okay and to follow i think i want to go next just so we can have a nice uh, the order of us going is a nice little circle around in our... Mm-hmm. I haven't said anything sure. yet. Maybe I love this movie. Maybe he loves it. Well, who knows? Well, I'm kind of whelmed by My mm. Fair Lady. You know, we've seen some not-so-good musicals. And we've seen some good musicals. And to me, this one fits kind of right in the middle. Because I agree, the costumes, the I think for a large part, the performances... Um, maybe not the singing, but that's okay, whatever. I'm, I'm no big judge on that. The cinematography, there's a lot to like of this film, and yet I was just kind of like super unfeeling the whole time. I don't like what this film has, what this film is saying, you know, about women, and I think we've got some really ludicrous characters that are not like reconciled. The film doesn't really like try to deal with them at all. Um, but you know, I mean, I like Audrey Hepburn. She's great. So... There's that, I guess. I'm just kind of like yeah. meh on it, really. I think well, so. Here's the thing: I I enjoyed the the movie in part. I would say sure. I think that there is a really great ninety minutes to two hours version of My Fair Lady. Yeah, I think that this movie is so verbose for a film that, frankly, in my opinion, doesn't have a whole lot to do with its runtime. And while I really like a lot of the, the songs, I feel like they all basically have a, a verse too many. I, I think that a lot of dialogue sequences are incredibly circuitous in a way that maybe an editor could have driven us somewhere a little bit more directly. And because of that, I found myself enjoying, as you guys are saying, the performances, the sort of... There's like a theatrical quality to um, to this that I really like. Um, so there's... I, I agree with Timo. There are elements here. But I found that this began to really really dragged for me when it became clear that, as Timo was saying, that I think that word uh, unreconciled is, is important here because it became clear that we're just going to kind of diverge and it didn't really matter what was going to happen. Who cares about the dad? Why is he even in there? He's got like a couple interesting scenes, but I feel like the messaging for this movie is kind of weird. I, I just left uninterested, I suppose, and I had, I, I had completely clocked out by the time the film was ending. Which is probably not great because they really try to spool a lot into those last couple minutes. Because I, mm-hmm. I checked that my little my little bar on Netflix. I'm like, oh god, there's four minutes left, and we're singing a <laughs> Higgins is singing a song about love here. How is this going to wrap up? And then it, it wraps with a Warner Brothers the end card, and things sure. happen there in those last 180 seconds. But yeah, <laughs> I think the movie's really uneven, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think one of my my favorite things about this movie and why on a repeat watch I was pretty much at a big smile on my face for the vast majority of the runtime. As I, as I do want to get into and the reason I would say this is not a great best picture I do think that there is quite a bit of drag as you get to the end but for that first two thirds I think this is almost a flawless movie in my opinion. I think it's where it doesn't tie up its its ends that you're like, wait, what the fuck was this all setting up? But when you are getting introduced to Eliza, you're getting introduced to Henry Higgins, you're getting introduced to their their concept together and and working through their process of, of him teaching her how to speak, all of these musical numbers, really drinking in the sets and, and the production design and all of that. I, th- I think this is a very consistent movie for most of its runtime. I found myself laughing so much at this movie because unlike a lot of movies of this era it feels like a 
parody in a self-aware way. There's such an acute sense of humor through all of the dialogue and the, and the, uh, the lyrics, especially in the songs here, that everything just felt so funny to me. Mm-hmm. And, and you're looking at these characters and they're saying these ridiculous things, but the film recognizes its own ludicrosity and, and, it, and it shines a light on that. And I think that makes this film really stand out from a lot of the older musicals that end up feeling quite similar tonally. And while this film falls into those trappings at the end, it has such a spark of, of humor to it and self-awareness that lots of older films completely lack. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree, Tucker. I think that um, Rex Harrison's Higgins is a is a great hateable character just for the fact that he the actor recognizes the script recognizes everything in this film recognizes the fact that he is a horrible misogynist character and he is cartoonish in that fact. He yeah. is his his opening number is like I hate women. That's how he starts yeah, it off. Well, yeah, well, anyway, he has a, he has multiple numbers about how he hates women and how women should be more like men. Uh, and his opening number is like, why can't uh, the English speak properly with how I want them to speak and everything? Just this like narcissistic, uh, snooty uh, British uh, academiac. Uh, yeah. That is that is, that is that putting works. himself above every single person in this film, and yet, and yet, because I, I, I this is my biggest my biggest issue with the film, and yet, it decide the film decides or I guess the, the the musical likely also ends this way with, so Higgins you know he put he eventually pushes Eliza away. You've seen the movie. You've all seen the movie. Everyone in the audience has seen the movie. Why not? He eventually pushes Eliza away, and. He, he he he's sort of like mourning this loss. He's like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't be an asshole to everyone that I meet and treat them like dirt. Maybe that's a bad thing to do. And then he sits down in his house and he's all and he's all dejected. And then Eliza comes in and he hits her with a, hey Eliza, why don't you go get my slippers? And then dun 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 dun, the end. Like, what is what is this? It, isn't this character supposed to learn a lesson? Isn't Eliza supposed to strike out on her own and leave this guy who misused her and you know abused her behind and go live with Freddie, a guy who actually appreciate appreciates her for who she is? No, we're just gonna go with a. Higgins and Eliza, boy, they're best buddies, or maybe there's a romantic interest there. What What, what is going on with the ending of this film is my question. I, I don't I know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It is very peculiar, and I think the reason why it's so peculiar is there's like five different ways that this could have easily been written differently, where no matter which way it went, it would have been more satisfying. I think maybe you cut off the, his last musical number and that last tiny sequence, and it's just... Eliza saying, hey, I don't need you anymore. I can be on myself. I can find love on my own. I, you, you've given me this ability, but finally I've come into myself. Because I do think that her progression to being confident is one of the most satisfying character development parts of this movie and is certainly what the film is centered around. But I think you end it there. You don't go back to, to Henry Higgins. Fine, great. You know, she's confident. Yeah. She's on her own. Perfect. That's a great ending. Or, and I, and I, I hate to say this because I do think this movie is too long. You had another 30 minutes on the end where he has to reconcile the fact that he's falling in love with her and that and that his his uh, love sort of comes with exposure and someone pushing back against him and no one's ever done that before. There is a story in there that could have been pretty, I wouldn't say easily told, but, but told on the end of that that does wrap it up in a more compelling way. And both of these options are not particularly complex and kind of feel like that's where the movie's headed, but they just like... They just they stick a doorstop in the progression of the film in a mm. place that it doesn't land on either side. Well, here's the here's the way I feel about it because frankly, I 
having and going into the film not knowing its plot or or its character arcs or anything, I knew pretty much as soon as they set up the bet that yeah, now I'm basically watching a romantic comedy and they are going to get together in the end. And I did in, uh, interpret the end to be there be a sort of romantic feeling between them. Absolutely. But my problem with it is that it it's it's. I don't. I don't know what the film is trying to say by ending that way. It undercuts its own themes, right? Yeah. Be- because mm-hmm. in the scene before, we we I think the sort of facade of Higgins starts to fall away a little bit, where he basically becomes like a like a dumb man child who's who seems like he's using this misogyny to cover up the fact that he's like emotionally incapable of connecting to a woman or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and one hundred percent. Yeah, and and we his his mom seems to recognize this because she's the last one in the room there. She's like. Yes, nice job, Eliza, when she sees that Eliza got through to her son. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like it's supposed to be, and there was an element of empowerment there, Tucker, as you're saying, in the confidence Absolutely. of Eliza. But then is it supposed to end with, with is, it, is it supposed to be like a cold ending of like, but you can't beat the patriarchy, and all, and you can try to be confident, well, but still you're going to have to go get your husband his slippers. There's supposed to be a comedy thing where I'm supposed to like play a slide whistle and elbow my <laughs> friend go, women, when the movie ends. Like it's so, it's so unclear, and I think it's really a damaging ending. Oh, yeah, well, I think you, it's if you, probably sorry, because... Say, okay, okay, you go, go, go. Uh, sorry, I was going to say... And then let me get uh, a word yeah. in. I want to speak about I, this ending. I know, I know. Uh, I would just say everyone should go by my headcanon ending that you can read uh, in my oh, letterbox review. I subscribed review. to the Tanner's uh, letterbox yeah. review of this uh, ending. Tanner underscore Dykstra, follow me on Letterbox if you have it. Uh, which is, after the fade to black, Eliza just shoots Harrington in the back of, <laughs> or, Harrington in the back of the head. Higgins, sorry, Higgins in the back of the head. Yeah, yeah, I think that would have been like, oh, that would have been ending. awesome girl boss moment that I would have loved to see. Um mm-hmm. A great Julie Deucer now thing, I think. That oh, would have really, really up the ante. No, but Whatever. Yeah, it's, it's French. A PWM I drive, moment. But I digress. PYM. I think that the the re, the, the thing. Let's even get a word in twice. The end of the film is emblematic of the issues it has with its like central conceit. I think this film is quite sexist, and I think this film is like very classist in the way that it, it like oh, is yeah. in how it is constructed, and it never deals with that. And it, especially in terms of its sexism, it allows its characters to be sexist. There's a moment of where they're like, maybe it's a bad idea to hate women, and then like, nah, I'm fine. I got this beautiful woman right here coming after me, and so like. Yeah, what 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 is the film trying to say? Does the film really just say that yeah, in this time period, late Victorian England, you could just totally get away with this kind of stuff? Like is that and and can is is it right that you should reform the way someone speaks to transform them into an entirely different person? I think these are things that the film like tries to explain but it doesn't have i don't think the political will in hollywood was there in 1964 no. to deal <laughs> with these issues ill-equipped yeah. politically to be to be like yeah these guys like we have to call out the injustices that we are fabricating in our own they can't they make up the aspects that are quite negative <clears throat> and then don't fix them basically even though the film I- has a happy ending the, the thing I, I think about the message of this film is that it really all comes down to not fully working because the ending doesn't tie it together. And it is mm-hmm. left on an ambiguous note of like, oh, I may, I, maybe she is going back to him. Oh, now, now, whose character arc does that like fulfill? None of them. But I, I do think that what the film does up until that point is surprisingly strong commentary on, on sexism and classism and patriarchy. Because as I was saying earlier, I do think that the, the comedic... Uh, the par- 
Paradic is that a word? Parody ish tone. Parodic is that? Can you is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea. Parody like. Uh, parody like. Parody wise. It's a parody. Parody wise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cookie wise, you know. Uh, tone of this film does feel like they're critiquing it when he they're making fun of him being sexist. It's it's cartoonish. It's overwhelming. It's ridiculous, and they recognize its ridiculousness as they're showing. The high-class people are, like, soulless fucking robots it, it, when they're watching mm-hmm. that that race God. sequence, which, by the way, I think it's absolutely great. the That's highlight of the film. Yeah. Um, but in these moments, you you can tell that the film knows that the, the classism and the sexism and, and those themes are bad, and it is criticizing them through humor in a way that they couldn't explicitly in this time period. I think, maybe not, maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into that, but I do think it is strong in that, and especially as Eliza is becomes empowered by the end. You're like, oh, okay, this is a, a female empowerment story. This is taking down this sexist man, this patriarchal system. But then the, the I think the last few minutes is really what throws that into question. But up until that point, I do think it is pretty strong. See, I, yeah, didn't, I, I didn't really know if I found it all that funny, though, while I was watching it. I found the situations to be very ridiculous and to me being like laughing, being like, this is like super kind of overblown and like mm, haha like this is crazy but not really like finding myself like laughing at what the at the film is saying but how the film is saying it and so like <clears throat> i for me that that analysis doesn't like read super well cuz i feel like if the film is directing its like commentary through the humor like i agree with your reading of the race scene that makes a lot of sense i saw i was like oh yeah they they're like the same they all move in like robots but I think that the the overall like message about like like literally like how you speak determines who you are is not really there isn't commentary made on that because ultimately she benefits a huge amount from it. She she is immense. She's wealthy. She is super rich, primarily because she changed you know changed the way she spoke. And gonna say it, that's not how you should become super wealthy. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you tried it? <laughs> yeah, I tried, I it, agree, it, tried, tried it at the top of the episode, and you saw how that turned out. That's oh, true. Christ. Fair point. I agree with Timo. I think I, I think that the film, in its absurdity, handles the sexism element of its thematics a little bit better. Although I still think that I agree with you, Tucker. I think that its work is completely undercut in the last couple minutes of the film. But I, I agree with Timo. I think that the class stuff is ridiculous in this movie. I think it's really ridiculous because. What I assumed was going to happen was that in the character arc of of Eliza Doolittle, our main character, I don't think we ever said her name in the review, is is as when she finally there's basically a moment where a, a switch is flipped. It's like three in the morning. There, there's like the hurricane, never her Hampshire hurricanes, whatever. Mm-hmm. She finally she finally nails it. No, it's it's the Spain rain and the Spain on the plains, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes. The point is, there's a moment where this sort of drilling clicks, and my assumption, and while she does fall back into her quote unquote lower English and a couple points after that I thought that there's going to have to be some kind of reconciliation with her with the fact that and and the first after the first couple scenes she up and leaves her class position all of her friends her communities all of it entirely in a negative light of oh I hear these old women like laughing and, and picking the beans they live a terrible life I get sad thinking about myself being there I need to escape and then the film is like Yep, all, the only you just got to move up, and that's the only way you can do anything with your life. And I and I found that to be really peculiar because I I wanted a scene where Eliza has to really wrestle with the fact internally that yeah, okay, I have this new speech, I have this new status, but I've lost everything I used to have. 
but doesn't really happen. And I think the dad is supposed to be that, but I think the stuff the dad is so intentionally written in a circuitous and witty way that I get so little out of his character. Other than the old ball and chain's gonna lock me down tomorrow. <laughs> and, and so I, I find him not be a great source of, of like of like that like consciousness of leaving behind the past. I, I, there's this weird like, oh, I'm burdened by my new sense of economic and social freedom, and I just find it to all be really poorly thought out and not really defended by the text of the film. I think there's one there's a hint that they could have gone with. I think there's a very possible way that the film could have gone down. Um, that it that Eliza says on a couple occasions, once at the beginning, and it's played back on the record player at the end of the film, that all she really wants to do is go work in the nice flower shop, but they won't hire her because she doesn't speak correctly. Mm-hmm. This is a great conflict. This is an amazing thing that you have set up that you're like, okay, a character has wants, there's obstacles, like we're, we were, we're working in the themes that you've established. The film, I feel like, doesn't, you know, in an entirely rewritten version of this film, that's an idea <laughs> that you could go down and explore. Mm-hmm. But... You know, it's like I was like, oh, the tiniest crumb of a hint was given to me of a of a thing that like I think that would have really worked. I mean, you know, you got it's got a there's a lot of other factors depending on making up entirely new storyline work in a film. But I feel like the just like, yeah, like you said, Abram, the way that the that it just doesn't even think about any of these aspects in her life, any of the, the class relations that she has. Um, and when, like, as a character, she kind of just wants to go work in the nicer flower shop because maybe that what you want to do in life is work with flowers. That's cool. You could do that. The, the last thing I would say before I stop monopolizing the class point is that, Timo, I think you <laughs> raise an interesting thing that actually is hinted at elsewhere in the film, but, again, not explored at all. This idea that it's Higgins and then what's his name? Park, Parkins? Peckman? Wegman's Pickering. 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 There we go. Yeah. Higgins, there's it's explicit. She goes, Higgins, you see me as a flower girl always. From the beginning, Pickering saw me as a lady, right? And so there was an opportunity, as you're saying, Timo, to explore the aspirations of, of Eliza and give her more autonomy towards the end of the film, and then have to deal with the fact that the larger society maybe still doesn't accept her because she came from this old position. Or all of a sudden that's erased. Her old life is erased. And I think both then give us as a way as an audience to sort of interpret a message about what's happening here. But because as you're saying, it's all so backgrounded and muddy, it means nothing to me. I mean, you you guys bring up great points. I I, I didn't really consider the whole thing of, you know, her, uh, the, the whole setup of her like wanting to work at a nice flower shop. Because that seems like it, it, it's a setup thing for her character arc to end on. And they just... Mm-hmm abandon it at some point they just kind of like oh there, there it goes oops uh i guess i i it's really interesting that you know because i always you know i i opened up this whole discussion saying like man they really butcher eliza's character arc at the end but i didn't really this discussion has sort of opened up the 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 full gate the floodgates to me of like how badly and how like early on they even begin to butcher it with and yet, completely abandoning some of her her original goals and her wants and stuff and stuff like that, and they they hamstring this character into the narrative. Freddie, who we see twice standing outside of her door, being like, "Ah, gee whiz, I'd really like to date her," and then she's like, "I'm gonna date Freddie." Um, okay, great, awesome. Um, it is it is interesting that. Illuminating to hear you guys talk about these things. I will note, though, that I do believe Eliza, in key moments, has 
great autonomy and really is an mm -hmm. active and, and chooses to take the paths that she takes in the film. Like she chooses to go to Hagen's and be like, I will pay you, you know, whatever they say the percentage of the millionaire's salary is. I will pay you as much as I can to do this yeah. thing. She clearly wants it. Um, but again, it just like, you know, it doesn't, it, it lets her explore and take some character choices within fairly narrow boundaries. Yeah. I, I think, for me, uh, the elements that are dropped are peculiar, and there are certainly roads that I wish it had gone down, and that certainly would have tied together all the thematic material. But when it all boils down to Eliza Doolittle, I do think that she actually does have quite a good set of compelling character moments. When we're talking about your, her having autonomy in those moments, but even when, as, as Abram was uh, alluding to a little bit, when she um, returns to the square from whence she came, where she was originally <laughs> selling the flowers, and she goes up to the people who used to be her friends or, or her community and they no longer recognize her and I think there's a really powerful scene there where she has an identity crisis where she has moved quote unquote up in the world she has she has nicer clothes but she has lost her identity she's lost where she's uh, where she's come from and you can see the sadness on her face as she slowly walks away realizing that they see her completely differently than than she was before even though internally she's the same person so I do think there is an interesting commentary there not only through her identity crisis but about uh, how outward perception affects the way that people look at you. And I, I think that's what the commentary of this entire film is going on. Of course, there's elements of, of sexism and classism there I think are pretty intrinsic to the plot and that maybe I, I disagree and, and, and think it handles them a, a little bit better than you guys do because I found this film a lot, a lot funnier than apparently the rest of you guys did. Um, but I, I do think that that core element of it is surprisingly well done because that's what each of these scenes is leading to is if you change a superficial element about yourself, you'll be perceived very differently from everyone. And maybe that'll make you lose some things, but give you different opportunities. And, and how do you wrestle with that? And I, I do think that is all really interesting. And it all boils down to Eliza, who is, in, in, I think, a really incredible character in the way that she's especially portrayed in her physicality by, uh, God, uh, Audrey Hepburn. I can't mm -hmm. believe her name almost slipped my mind. But the physicality of her performance, I think, makes this movie shine immensely it's a it's the small nod she does it's the movement of her arms and her legs as she's performing these these songs and these dance sequences or even just reacting to the way that higgins or or the other people around her are like talking down to her there's so much emotion in her performance that i'm able to gather what the character is thinking because of the skill of the actress portraying her well yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not uh, bemoaning the performance from Hepburn at all. She's, she obviously does a fantastic job and should have gotten a nomination, despite the fact that she did Very not. She didn't. Um, yeah, I'll get into that with some trivia later. But I think what we're talking about is not, you know, we're not bemoaning the humor or anything like that, because as I said, this is a very funny film and seems to be knowing what it's doing for a long time. But the issue is, in the script, seems to sort of fumble these conclusions that it's, seeming like it's going to draw but then retroactively you have to be like wait were these the 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 conclusions that it was trying to draw the whole time or was i just assuming that because that makes the most sense writing wise that you would end these character arcs these way that th these certain ways and these character moments would lead to this ending place for a character or something like that i think that's really the issue that we're that we're all talking about here is a scripting issue, a, a character writing issue towards the end, you know, a trajectory for these characters that seems to be 
I don't know, basically not unwritten, not present. I don't really know what what to assign there, but yeah, I think that is the main issue with that. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of having this. I'm having an internal crisis, an identity crisis myself. Of like, should I should, should I be rethinking my score on how to assign this? Because all the elements that I still originally like, Hepburn's performance, Harrison's performance as this unlikable character, they all they're all still there, of course. But I think they're recontextualized by the scripting issue and of course there's the costume design and the production design and everything that are fantastic in this but i think it is at, at the bare bones the story that i got so much humor and enjoyment out of i'm like hmm but what what are, what are the conclusion that that is drawing and are they good ones that make sense with the character setups towards the beginning i i, I will i will say that my issues with the film go beyond that mm, sure. i don't like audrey hepburn's performance Really? <gasps> no, I don't. I First guessed. of all, I guess it's certainly subjective, but I find her whole screaming bit to be so grating. Oh, I, I loved sure. it. It was funny. I, I mean, I, 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 I would say intentionally so, and I think that's yeah, the yeah. self-awareness of the film is like, oh yeah, like her voice is obnoxious intentionally. So her screaming in the situation is cartoony, exaggerated, and that's part of the charm of the world of the characters. I would. I say. mean, it, it certainly might be, but as when it reaches a point that for me as an audience member, I no longer really care about your character. I, th I think it's failed because ultimately, I think that her like intentionally ridiculous, larger than life accent she puts on that affect does succeed and it does go to the point in the sort of themes you're talking about, Tucker. But when she's literally like screaming and crying as everything happens. I get the joke, but it just it gets becomes grating, and I think this film's humor and its and its as I alluded to the, the the musical numbers and and the dialogue sequences, they just like turn the knife a time too many for me. Mm. Like it, it goes back to I think you the like film's being too... stabbed, but not turned that many times. <laughs> no, oh no, yes, no, 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 no. yes, 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 Tucker, you're 100 percent right. But 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 I do think it speaks to the fact that like. Scream a couple less times. Have a couple less verses on these songs, right? Sure. Because I, I'm with Timo. I didn't really. I don't think I laughed at loud the movie one time. I think it's a witty film. I, it's. Uh, I also don't typically connect to humor for, of this era and prior, as we've talked about in other reviews. But it's certainly witty, and I appreciate that. But again, I was not sold on the performance. I also was not sold on the the three a.m. flip of now all of a sudden I can do the voice perfectly. Hmm. It it feels like we're all of a sudden we're okay. We we're about halfway through the film. We got to <laughs> we got to switch tracks. So we're gonna switch tracks there. It just didn't quite work for me. Here, I obviously this is not like Audrey Hepburn is like you know what I think would be awesome. Let's do this. To me, it reads like the script wants me to do this, so I'm going to, and she does it well. I do think she's charismatic, but again, I agree. I think it comes to how her character is written, how the entire structure of the narrative is written. So I was not as charmed, I, I think, as maybe you were, Tucker. The one yeah, yeah, thing. Me and Audrey Hepburn, I like. I just like watching Audrey Hepburn on film. She's great, yeah. and I just think she's like very magnetic personality on screen. Um, but my like little bit is, uh, you know, during the musical sequences, I felt like like she wasn't the most dynamic and most like movement based character. We we don't. I feel like a lot of these musical sequences did end up kind of boiling down to your characters standing or sitting one standing you know remaining motionless and then singing at each other um and then a you know getting up walking to another position continuing to sing um and i just was like oh you know we we've seen musicals even musicals from around this time i'm thinking to american in paris that really move us around and really go like 
put that choreography into the musical because it's song and dance. Like those are things that in my mind are linked in a movie musical. And I was wishing I had more dynamicism during the musical sequences where Audrey Hepburn could move. And because I do, I think you're right, Tucker, that she is good at communicating these like subtle nuances in her performance when she's not dancing and singing. But when she is, um, it's like, it's weaker, you know? I think the reason that this film works so well for me and feels so distinct is that it's not that. And I think it does very work quite well in its in its more static nature, in it in its more subtle performances. Because what this movie is entirely about, and I think this is not disagreeable in the or uh, you can't disagree with in the slightest, is about linguistics. This is about language, it's about wordplay, and that is obviously in the in the literal text of the film, but also in where it puts its focus. Is these characters are a professor and a, and a flower girl, and it's about the words and the language. So when you're in these uh, song and dance sequences, it is, I think, so much more on the song because you're trying to pay attention to the wordplay. And as they're doing these subtle movements and like shaking their fists and doing small movements with the wordplay, I think that is really fun and kinetic on a really small level. It's like they're animated in their conversation ability, not in their dance ability. And I think that's maybe for me why I... I find this sort of conversational tone of the musical numbers a lot more memorable and compelling than many other dance sequences because I feel like those can get a little bit visually cluttered. They can move around a little bit too much where I'm focusing too much on on the kinetic aspect of the dance and not on the wordplay that's talking about the characters and their moments and their emotions and feelings. And of course, those two can go in hand in hand. I, I love Chicago. I love the new West Side Story. That These two aren't mutually exclusive. But I think this shows me that Dance is not strictly necessary to have incredibly compelling musical sequences. I think the amount of musical sequences in the movie is, I think, maybe too much. Maybe it adds too much to <laughs> the runtime of the film. But the consistent quality. There are so few in this, so few musical sequences in the movie that are not memorable, that are not unique, that do not have entirely different stylings in, in, their, uh, in what topic they're tackling or whose perspective they're coming from. There's so much in here that... I, I think maybe that's where it becomes too much, but I have to just say, man, the musical aspect of the film, which I almost never praise, is top-notch. Like, some of my favorite of all time. See, yeah. I, I found it interesting you said that because I was, because I was watching, like, I wonder why Tucker likes these musical sequences so much because I personally am, certainly with Timo, I found a lot of them to be very flat because when they are more expressive, I the, the two I think of are... Um, Eliza's first number when she's you know with all of her friends in the, in the flower patch and she's on like that big wagon at the end and they're tipping her back and forth or when um, dumb hokey dad is, is here <laughs> for one last night of fun before he gets married and he's dancing with everybody in the bar. I think what's interesting with these numbers is that they kind of like toe the line between these are just happening in the universe of the world or, or, they're, com or they're like extrapolations away from it. I think there's a fun like middle ground here where we're actually engaging with elements that, that would be present in the world had we not been singing. And so I found that concept to be compelling, but it's just not taken far enough because when we are just hanging around and singing or walking back and forth a little bit, it really does suck a lot of the energy out of the room for me because, Tucker, I agree that the wordplay is strong, and it is strong enough to match you with more engaged choreography to really, set, set, really knock the sequences home for me. But I also have one major issue with, this, with the numbers. Can Higgins not sing... Uh, well, he absolutely can. He's a professional uh, star. He was in the musical 
Yes, of this Rex film Har- as Rex Harrison Henry was... Higgins for twenty years before this. Yes, but uh, so but he but what... he talks things, and that's a th- that's a big right. thing about this. He talks and, things, and I find it super distracting because other people aren't doing that. So it it leads me as the viewer not knowing what you just told me talking to be like, can this guy not sing? Like, what's happening mm-hmm. here? It doesn't feel right. It, it, it feels like there's like so many inconsistencies in how we're choreo- choreographing these scenes, how we're vocally directing them. I was not a big fan of musical numbers. The reason no. I would say I disagree with that is because I do feel like it makes his character and his uh, his personality shine through in a very different way. It's like, okay, yeah, he's not singing outwardly like Eliza is, like Alfred is, or, or these other characters. No, he's he's rigid, he's doing small movements, and he's doing everything super staccato. And I think that makes... His numbers feel much more personal to him. It's like, oh, this is his wordplay. He's using these big words because that's what his personality is like. And he's not moving his body or singing in flamboyant ways because that's not who Henry Higgins is, is as a character. And I think so. having different stylings actually ends up working and dis- making the characters significantly more distinct than most musicals otherwise have. You know, uh, I think a, I want to let Tanner give some trivia. Okay, okay, I do. I do have some trivia. And a- Abram, it is interesting that you pegged that that he that he's doing it. He's doing his singing in a different way than uh, most other people because uh, Sir Rex Harrison talked his way through the musical numbers. They were they were uh, because of that they were unable to pre-record them and have him lip sync. So a wireless microphone, one of the first that was ever developed. I read about, I read by about the way. this. I read because this yeah. is important. Wireless microphones, was, dude. Was rigged up and put right put right under his tie, and apparently they did it with like radio signals. So sometimes it would pick up like uh, passing police cars and stuff like that. Tanner, I <laughs> hate to break it to you, we still do yeah. it with radio signals. Oh, that makes that actually makes a lot of sense. I don't know why I said they used to. Um, however, this so they, they you know he's doing he's doing this talk singing thing. They can't they can't, they can't lip sync it. So. His, this meant that his mouth and his words were completely in sync and everyone else's looked off since they were lip syncing. The studio thought that this was too obvious, so they altered Harrison's soundtrack, lengthening and shortening notes in various places so that his syn- his synchron- synchronicity, synchronicity is yeah. slightly off like all the other ca- actors and actresses. And uh, apparently, you, you, I think oh Tucker mentioned God. the fact that he does not move around a whole lot. Apparently, he had like leg pains because he was he it's a guy he was a guy in the 60s and he smoked a lot and he had to stop smoking because he had leg pain so bad so that's probably also a reason why he doesn't move around a whole lot well and wireless microphones. he's also you, an older guy you really don't want wireless microphones moving around very True. much yeah. you don't want you want those clothes to stay put while they're while you want to hear something through that you yes. know one of my I, abram you bring up my my favorite musical sequence even though i think it adds very little to the film is old dads getting married the next day i like that one particularly yeah, fun. in the way that camera is moving all around and we visit a ton of locations with great match those creative match cuts were really enjoyable to see where you zoom into some people's hair some women's hair and then you pan out and you're in a new shot but you were zooming out from some people who were wearing hats that were the same color and shape as the hair in the shot beforehand i think that's really really creative and when you carry the father out he's going off to get married in the morning and how do they lift him up and carry him away it's like a literal funeral procession and this is one moment where i was like okay i appreciate that this film is being very outward in what it is trying to say and being very obvious because i get it he's going Mm -hmm. he is literally going to die when he gets married i hate my wife i wish i was dead (laughs) the thing i would say is that i I do think that applies to most if not all of the musical sequences which is why i love them so much and think they're so consistent when you're talking about which i I really think we need to talk about this fucking race sequence because when you you show up at this this ridiculous set with astroturf on the ground Mm -hmm. and everyone is wearing 
uh, monotone like, costumes. Gray, yeah, like grays and whites and you know. extra, extremely extravagant monotone mm-hmm. costumes. And they're they're talking like this about the race <laughs> that they're so they're so excited about. This is the most exciting thing I've ever experienced in my life. And they <gasps> lift up their binoculars like this, and everything is just going. I I think that that is another example of where the film, like you were saying, is doing exactly what it needs to to communicate the tone of the sequence, the ridiculousness of the sequence. And, and I would say that extends to other ones as well, like Alfred's first uh, song where he's talking about how how much he hates doing work and he's <laughs> bouncing up and down through the, the trenches that they're digging. And... With a little bit of luck. Uh, Tucker, by the way, uh, you left out the best part of the horse race sequence, which yeah. is what after the, when they lift up the binoculars and the horses are right in front of them. Right in front of them. Exactly. And it's that so got, like, that got the biggest the out loud laugh from me. Yeah. It's so on the nose that I think it's really like just pointed in it in its uh parody parody commentary. Yeah, I think I like didn't quite get what was going on. I like that was early enough in the film that it didn't or I guess I was like midway through. It's, it's right after, before the intermission. It's after midway. Yeah, I like didn't I almost didn't get it because the rest of the film is not it's that is such a clearly stylized sequence and the rest of the film goes for this musical realism of London I would say where it's like everything kind of looks realistic and they're on the streets and and then we go to this this racetrack set and it 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 looks like a set you it's got astroturf on the ground and I and it like I didn't take it seriously at first I was like oh, oh you shouldn't that's oh, intentional, but Absolutely. like not as like I'm take I'm saying like this is like the this is weird. I'm like this is what we've gone from very high production values to something that I feel like is doesn't have very high production values, and it didn't like register with me until like late like way later. I was like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of what was going on there. But it, a, a situation like that isn't really repeated and isn't. It's just kind of a one off. Even though there are other circumstances with people of the same class, you know, the the whatever the ball is, the big one at the end is like a non-musical sequence. There's no, is there any, <clears throat> is there even any singing no. and dancing in that? No, and it no. and it is oh, yeah. staged realistically, completely unlike the horse race sequence. Before mm-hmm. we talk about the ball sequence, I agree with you completely, Timo. I picked up on none of this and feel like I missed nothing, to be honest with you, <laughs> because because. It, let me draw a comparison to a much better film here for a second. Oh, so right, when I was watching Zack Snyder's Justice League. Oh my god. <laughs> I, was, I knew it. I was going to say, I was just about to say, one of the classic Abram Buhner compares a Best Picture one to a Zack Snyder film. So I'm watching <laughs> Zack Snyder's Justice League here, and I get to the end of the film, we've just defeated Doomsday, great. And the camera comes back up, and, and we're so, suddenly we're in Zack Snyder's green screen backyard. Yep. And, and we're, we're in... not in that movie. No, gr- Oh, sorry. They all weren't together. Steppenwolf, Dark side. Who, excuse Steppen, you. Who gives a shit? I can't believe I just uttered that word on a question of the bestest episode. <laughs> we're, we're in Zack Snyder's green screen backyard, and all of a sudden we're doing the Injustice timeline. And, mm-hmm. the, and it's shot completely differently. The tenor of, of the production is completely different. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Joker's asking for a hand job from Batman. It doesn't nope. make any sense. And yep. in the context of the scene, there's a real... And, Agree to disagree at this point. There's a real artistic vision there from Zack Snyder, mm. but it's at odds with the rest of the film. And I felt very similarly about this racetrack sequence because, frankly, when when we come up on the racetracks, I was like, "Wait, is this is this the intermission part?" But it wasn't. It was just another sequence of the film. So I agree with Timo that it felt like we just took this thing that I agree is very distinct, very interesting, and just slotted it into a place where the the my audience expectations, the the context of its placement, led to me being like, "I." Uh, 
<laughs> the one thing I would say about that is, and and, and I don't know if you, if you'll disagree with this or not, but I think that's so obviously intentional that it makes sense. Is this sequence is unlike the other high class sequences in the movie, so obviously about the artificiality of small talk and of the high class that everything is rigid. They're moving like robots, and it does shift away from that when Eliza is introduced, and they go back to talking and singing and moving in normal ways, and they're talking to her. Like, it's normal. It's it's about that first sequence where everything is about the artificiality that makes that so distinct and works so well for its commentary on class. I mean, I suppose so, but why isn't the rest of the film like that, then? It, like, it because because that. Higgins is not like the rest of the artificial uh, high-class people. They actually don't like him. He's sort of a, an offshoot of this where he sort of mm-hmm. exists in his own bubble. I He's think an that incel. There's an, he, yeah, he, he actually is. is. There's <laughs> yeah. multiple songs on that yeah. account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, Tucker, you have I a great point. You have a great point, Tucker. I agree. Um, I, I, your reading, your reading makes sense. I think a lot, Tucker. I don't um, know. I'm just like I just, that sequence. It like it doesn't it doesn't like click for me really. There's something you know something is off about it in the way that it's it situates itself within the rest of the film. Even though like yeah, like I think you're right about how it what it is saying about class. I'm just like hmm. Maybe there's a more fluid way to do it. I'm not sure. I want to talk about Audrey Hepburn a bit more because I feel like we only really addressed her and her performance in these generalities about like, oh, the, she does these things well. Because I think she does a very good job in the areas of the film where she's allowed to shine through, where her comedic timing is allowed to shine through. And it ties into what we were just talking about with the racetrack sequence because that's like her first public debut as this as the fair lady, the titular fair lady. Uh, and the way that she, you know, she, she delivers these lines that are like the that are still like her cockney dialect but with a the proper british way of speaking are so good oh my and God, like so and funny. she's she's playing she's playing it so straight off of these other people who are also playing it straight you know how you have you have all these straight men like literally and figuratively in this scene uh who and that's difficult difficult to pull off comedically and Hepburn doesn't and everybody else in the scene does it but Hepburn is obviously the centerpiece of that scene where she's like talking about uh, her what is her her, gra- the, the, her grandma a, dying of yes. a disease and her dad pouring the gin down her grandma's throat as she dies. Yes. What the fuck is she saying? It's so funny. Oh my god! And it's it the, it brings up her her the way she says these things is there's almost like a physical image of your mind of like the Cockney dialect underneath, and then there's just just this thin veneer of like she knows how to say the words, but she doesn't know the words to say to fit in here. Uh, I, I think she does that fantastically. If we want to talk about the actual dramatic side of her acting, I think we have to go to the confrontation between her and Higgins after they get back from the big fancy ball at the end, where she basically it comes after the number um, "You Did It," where she's God, sort of like so funny. where oh she's stand, where she's standing in the background, and it's funny, yes, because you know there's this there's this awkwardness, but it's also deeply sad as you like see her standing back there just uh basically a statue amongst all these guys being like hey buddy boy we did it huh we turned this piece of trailer gutter trash into a real lady didn't we up up top high fives good job all around let's get her let's kick her out of the house and she's like what the hell you what the hell are you guys doing that this is an awful way to treat people and but it, it comes across in this very human way where she's she's talking about it in this roundabout ways where you know she uh and she comes off very natural because when you're having an argument like when you would be having an argument like this 
you wouldn't come right out and say the exact thing. Like, all these little snipes and things come out first, and that's what the other person thinks that the argument is about. And it's really interesting, and she pulls it off very, very well, and it is criminal criminal i might add that she wasn't not wasn't even nominated for best support for best uh main lead actress excuse me jesus especially so because of the notorious thing about this movie the mm-hmm. my fair lady uh stage musical was the main star who played uh eliza doolittle was julie andrews mm-hmm. who they replaced with audrey hepburn for this movie and then julie andrews because of that got a chance to do mary poppins and won best lead actress this year so there's a whole kitten caboodle going around there it's, yes it's such an interesting story um Tanner, I, I do have i do have some did, trivia on audrey hepburn but i want to throw it over to you guys first well guys. i was just gonna say we've we're, you've 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 scintillated us with a little bit of nominations but maybe perhaps oh. you could give us the wins and knobs a little bit i can give please? you i suppose i can give you the wins and knobs can i have a little please can <laughs> i have some wins and knobs you may have a whittle wins and knobs timo uh, so obviously this film won Best Picture. Uh, Rex Harrison won uh, Best Actor in a Leading Role, and he uh, he thanked two fair ladies in his life when he accepted the award, Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn, uh, he, when he was up there. George Cukor won Best Director. Uh, the film won Best Color Cinematography, uh, Best Set Decoration, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and uh, uh, best, best Score. Yeah, um, And it was nominated for... Uh, best actor in a supporting role for Stanley Holloway. I presume that is Eliza's Offered. father. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Totally deserved. Uh, best actress in a supporting role, Gladys Cooper. Tucker, which character Ooh. was Gladys? Was that probably the she mother? Maid or whatever? whatever the fuck. Yeah, Miss Pierce maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Which, maybe. That's a weird nomination. Uh, best adapted screen. It was nominated for best adapted screenplay and best editing. Yeah, I think I think all totally deserved. It. And the one thing I do want to say, I think we have to wrap this up, so we can't go much longer. Mm-hmm. But uh, is that the restoration of this movie is insanely good. Mm-hmm. When when you see people coming down the stairs in this opening scene, like this could be shot today. The sound and the video quality are so insanely well restored. I I don't think I've ever been as impressed with a restoration as I was this. Yeah, I mean even yeah. on Netflix, which looks pretty garbage most of the time, I think it looks quite good. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, well, it doesn't help that the cinema, well, it does help quite a bit, that the cinematography is, ah, it's great. The camera, it moves fantastic. around, and there's a lot of, you know, best cinematography goes to the film with the most color, so. <laughs> best color cinematography. Show. Color cinematography. Yeah, yeah. Like most June. color cinematography. June doesn't have a lot of color. It's all yellow. It's a great uh, I do have the to, eyes of the Fremen. I feel like I need to address, if we can get back on, on back on track here, uh, I feel like I need to address the you know the other big drama about this film, which is uh, Audrey Hepburn's being dubbed over. Uh, yeah, she's yes. dubbed over by Marty Nixon. Not completely though. That is a common misconception about this film. Uh, she, Audrey Hepburn's voice. Uh, apparently, the reasoning for this was something about. Uh, let's see. She she was not it, the music for the music itself for the musical was not transposed down to accommodate uh, Hepburn's low mezzo voice. That's how the lady who dubbed her put it. Uh, but Hepburn did sing uh, most of "Just You Wait" as well as the reprise of the song, showcasing her ability to sing perfectly at ease with with, with uh, things that are at a lower register. She also sang uh, a couple uh, a couple other choice lines, uh, like in. Sleep, like the line, sleep, sleep, I couldn't sleep tonight from I could have danced all night. Um, 
But yeah, apparently Audrey Hepburn did not know that she was going no, to be they dubbed over. They did it in secret. Uh, when she learned about this, she apparently stormed off set. Uh, but she she kept it classy. She came back the next day and apologized for her wicked behavior. You don't have to apologize, Audrey. That's fucked. That's fucked that they did that. So um, Tanner, are you yeah. telling are you telling me that the movie, which is about changing your voice to make it yes. fit the situation that you want to go, had mm. to change the voice of the main mm. actress because they didn't Quite, like it? Quite, isn't it? Quaint, isn't it? Hmm. Life imitates art, or the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and apparently, Audrey Hepburn uh, said that she would never make a musical again unless she could do singing on her own. Good, good stipulation. Uh, yeah, completely fair. Um, I mean, I just have some assorted, like, favorite little jokey, jokey things or whatever. But, but we can skim over those if we need to get to scoring. Let's get, well, let's get on this. Abram, what do you say? Do I was you want to say or go to scoring? I've, I've been mostly negative, and I think my score is going to reflect that because as I've been talking, like I was like, hmm, yeah, maybe I really did not like this movie, actually. Maybe when I said at the beginning I liked parts of it, I, was, I actually meant that I liked one part of it in particular. That's when she swallows a marble, and then and then Higgins goes, oh, that's okay, I have more marbles. Yeah. I just think that's a really good joke. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. All right, let's uh, give it a score. Let's pull it right, up. Let's do it. And, uh, and oh, see. This is a real crisis that I'm having right where here. Where my fair lady goes. Where does it go? I know where it goes. I've got a score, but I don't have the spreadsheet open. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'm gonna, I'm the narrate a little bit. My, my inner monologue is what's going on here. You, so, you are the one. You, can you even sing it for us? Maybe you know. Excuse well, no, me. Don't, don't it's, make him do that. Oh uh, okay. no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but what I was going to say was, you know, I, I had this film at a higher score initially, and over the course of our conversation, it's been, it's been lowered and raised up again. So I think. I'm going to err on the side of uh, positivity here. I, I think that's what I'm going to go with. Because I, I think I'm... Or am I going to remember the fact that they, they really just fumble these characters? We don't I'm, have time for this. I'm going to err on the side of positivity. I got err my number locked Err on the side of putting in. the number in. I, oh, I, I give I a shit what it is. Go, 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 go. Press the buttons. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, there we go. Wow, what a spread. The average score is... We have a one second. We're figuring out the average score Mr. Computer is calculating. It's right there. It's 6.8. 6.8, so pretty oh, high wow. for a little... a uh, For a film that we were pretty hard on throughout most of the uh, review. The point breakdown is 8.7, which is what Tucker gave it. Tanner gave it a 7.1. So, Eric, were you deciding between 7.0 and 7.1? I was like, I was waffling between a six or in the sixes or in the sevens is what okay, I was waffling okay. between. Yeah. I gave it a six and Abram gave it a 5.2. So pretty big spread and the computer has decided that that is going to be 6.8. Not the computer, math has decided that that's how averages work. <laughs> the computer so just picks a number every time. <laughs> Randomly. So that is actually very interesting because it is going to go right below a different musical, one that we actually already oh. referenced. American in Paris sits at hmm. 6.9. And so this is going to sit right below it at the 49th spot on our list. Damn. Well, you can't win <laughs> them all, Tucker. No. Tucker, where is it on your list? What? what where is it on your list? On my your personal, personal list? list? Yeah. Oh, like number 13 or something like that? Yeah, I was just curious how big of a disparity uh, in, that is. In in retrospect, I think uh, I my my score for an American in Paris is a little too high based on how much I remember about that film. But hey, we digress. It's in the moment. What are you gonna do? Wait, what? That, that's what we've we've put ourselves into this position. It happens mm -hmm. every week. Yes, exactly. Yep. 
Okay, well, do we have anything else we want to speak about this film, or should we just spin that wheel? Let's give it a little spin rooney how's, how's about? How's about? Let's give it a spins a rooney I, I, You guys will have to uh, beat that way of speaking out of me as well. Or whatever they do in this movie, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting the belt later, Tanner. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, but I did. Let's let's end the episode, huh? Uh, wheel, wheel, what's your deal? Give us a movie that makes us squeal. Is it on digital? Is it on real? Wheel, wheel, what's your deal? And the wheel's deal is number one again. We are getting lots of ones, huh? Yeah, we are. The wheel is just really deciding that it's wanting to just go back in or yeah. in semi modern order. films. What film is our most recent film that we haven't talked about, Tucker? We've we've knocked off the entirety of the 2010s in terms of doing our reviews. Man. So we're going to be talking about the 20. Oh, I guess this is specifically the 2010 mm. Best Picture winner, uh, which is a controversial one, to say the least. And I'm very interested to hear our thoughts on it as, as we give it a close modern analysis. But directed by Tom Hooper and starring Colin Firth, Hella Bonham Carter, Helena yep. Bonham Carter, uh, Guy Pierce, and Jeffrey Rush, we're going to be watching The King's Speech. Ah, we're going back right across the pond again. Uh, no, I guess we're not we're not leaving the pond. We're staying in England. No, so. we we come we traverse back to America every time to do quests. Then we go we're going uh, back. Okay, back to we have to back fly to, to the, the location where the film was recorded. Yeah. Was, yes, the quest for the bestest is an American-made podcast. Yeah, exactly. Made in the USA, of course. What do they call? What is it? Blimey, London. What is what is the word that the, the adjective that is ascribed to London? I'll learn Govna. when I go there sometime soon. Govna. Thank you. We're going back to Govna, London. Okay, um, well, I was... think this is it. We yeah. did it, boys. We talked about My Fair Lady. Um, I, I personally feel that this is obviously significantly too low of a placement for it. Uh, I, I do think that what this movie does best, it knows. It does best, and it puts that for the majority of its runtime. I think I think the humor of this movie is fantastic. It's wit, it's characters, it's charm. It's, it's some of the best lyrical dialogue I've ever heard in my life. Phenomenal set design, phenomenal costumes, great cinematography. Like I, I think this movie hits on so many marks. I, I frankly find it a little bit disappointing that we had to focus on the negatives for so much of it because I wasn't able to espouse all of the things that I that I loved so much. But that this is the way of the quest, and mm. uh, I just want to end it on that powerful note because this is this powerful. is one of the best best picture winners. Oh. Well, Tucker, you'll just have to grit and bear it, much like Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> this has been a quest BLBS crossover episode. I it think. has. We're a little, we're a little in spirit and tenor. Yeah. We're a little all over the shop in this episode, but I like it. We're a little loose, we're a little flower goofy. You know, we're all a little all over the flower shop. Unlike Eliza Doolittle, who did not get to go to a flower shop. At so maybe all. we are like Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> oh, I see. All right, my fair ladies, I think it's time we got to wrap this episode up. We will see Let's you next it. time for The King's Speech. Looking forward to watching this one because it kind of reminds me of that Churchill movie that was going to win a couple mm, of years ago. Darkest Hour. Yeah, it reminds me of that for some reason. I've seen neither. British. And, and, and we're going to find out what King's Speech is about next week. And we this will be here. Snatch. <laughs> End of the episode. End it. We'll be here to talk about it on the quest for the bestest. Thank you all for joining me. And we'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>